Special shout out to our sound team back there. They were working furiously to overcome a little bit of technical difficulties. We're making some changes that we're really excited about with our sound system, but uh, they did a great job, like right down at the last minute getting it fixed. So thanks to those guys. All right, I'm going to pray again. Calm me down a little bit. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thanks for the rain. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty um, of an Oklahoma summer. We've had this amazing July, and it's been, uh, it's been pretty cool out relative to other Julys that we've had, and we just are grateful for a, uh, a, nice, a nice rainy day. So, Father, we love you and thank you so much for your, your goodness to us. And, Father, I just pray that you would uh, fill me with your spirit and that you would um, just empower us as we open up your word and uh, we get into your word and we um, just, just enjoy who you are as we d- d- uh, tangle into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to encourage you to turn to uh, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 22. This is the, uh, the story of, oops, there's my family up there. Um, so, um, I'm going to do this and do this. Thank you guys for, um, and uh, there we go. Love technical issues that make you rely upon the Lord. And um, there we go. Okay. Uh, we've been in the series on the Gospel of John, and um, we're going to talk about receiving Jesus as the King and talk about the triumphal entry this morning. Um, you know, usually you read about the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, and one of the great things about going through an entire book of the Bible is that passages that you normally use in one season of the year show up because you're preaching through a book and teaching through a book, and uh, the triumphal entry is one of those passages, and on Palm Sunday, usually people don't read the passage out of the Gospel of John because it's the shorter one. And the focus is a little bit different than the other ones. And the focus on this one, I found fascinating and very applicable. So you all know about about this famous wedding that took place, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Uh, It was fun to uh, hear about what the Nielsen Information Company said about this. They said 30 million people tuned in. Well, the Brits pushed back on that, and they said no. No, it was 2 billion people that watched this. Uh, Over 18 million Brits watched it, but they claimed over 2 billion people watched that wedding worldwide. Now, if you were uh, fortunate enough to get an invitation to be actually in the chapel, that meant you were pretty important, uh, pretty important because the chapel was, was small, the grounds were much larger, and uh, if you got an invitation to be part of the grounds, you were only one of like 2,600 people who would have gotten that invitation. It's a big deal. And you'll remember that once the wedding was over, the couple got into the carriage and they went from Windsor Castle to the city and back. And there were two people behind them who were the equivalent of our Secret Service, all dressed up very British like in their clothing, but they were their secret service. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Everybody watched it, and they were crying and carrying on and laughing, and it was awesome. And then I read about all the time that it took to plan the royal wedding. I mean, it was, it was incredible. And what we have in John 
chapter 12 is we have a royal event. It's a royal event that is far surpasses that event. It is arguably the greatest royal event in history in terms of its significance. The greatest royal event in history. It's the triumphal entry. Did not have all the pomp and circumstance of the British royal wedding. But here, think about this. This is the Son of God coming into His eternal city. He's entering the city He loves. He's entering the city He's chosen. He's entering the city that will become the capital of the new heavens and the new earth in eternity. He's coming into the city from which one day He will rule and reign in righteousness. This is a big deal. He's walking into His eternal city. The fact that this story is told in all four of the Gospels suggests that all of the disciples recognized what a big deal this was after it happened because they didn't totally understand it while it was happening. The first three Gospels focus on the unbelief of the people. The final Gospel focuses on the belief of a very small minority. And that's what I want to focus in on this morning. That very small minority that that understood Him and received Him. What was going on inside them that led to that reception? That's what we want to look at this morning. And I want to ask the question, how do we, in the year 2018, respond to the King of the universe when He makes His kingdom claims to us? How do we respond? So, I want to begin with, with, uh, with the story. <clears throat> and uh, the story goes that Jesus comes in on a donkey, and there's an ancient picture of it. Here's a more recent, like, demonstration of it. Uh, but the story essentially is that Jesus is entering Jerusalem as the coming king. That's the, that's the storyline. So here's ancient Bethany. And on the uh, Sunday morning after the Sabbath, Jesus instructs two of his disciples, they were staying in Bethany, to go to the next village near the Mount of Olives, which was called Bethpage. And there's an ancient picture of the outskirts of that tiny little village. In that village, Jesus said they would find two animals tied to a post outside of a house, a mama donkey and a baby donkey, the baby colt. And Jesus said, I want you to untie the two donkeys, the mother and the child. I want you to untie those donkeys. I want you to take them from Bethpage to Bethany. When Jesus did that, the disciples must have gone, seriously? That's, a, that's crime. It's crime back then. It's crime now. Uh, stealing a horse, stealing cattle, big crime in the early uh, years of our country. Like you get hanged for stealing a horse. We were uh, with some friends of ours in Cuba, and uh, one of them had been accused of stealing uh, a piece of li- a, a livestock, a, a unit of livestock, and, uh, and that was a big deal in Cuba. So, that is, so they're thinking, okay, really? 
Do we do this? And, and Jesus, recognizing this, this, said, look, if anybody says to you, what are you doing? Just tell them the Lord needs them and all will be well. So they go to Bethpage, they untie the two, donkey, donkey colt, and they take them back to Bethany. And I want you to get in your mind the smallness of the donkey colt. This is a small animal. And when they arrive to make preparations to get back into the city, which does Jesus choose? He chooses the small donkey colt to ride. They think, well, why did he choose the donkey colt? Is it because that was the easiest thing to ride? Why did he do this? Well, there was a fundraiser at Wesleyan Christian School a while back, and it was called Donkey Basketball. And the senior pastors of churches in town we're playing against the youth pastors of churches in town. I was on a donkey, and Adam was on a donkey. And I, and I will tell you that uh, my donkey was very stubborn. Adam's donkey was downright mean, and he bucked Adam off and kicked him. Uh, at least that's the story I've been told. Jesus is choosing the harder donkey to ride. A donkey colt with his mother nearby is not going to be the easiest donkey to ride. I'll tell you why he did that in a second. Why do, okay, why does he ride the colt? Well, first of all, Jesus is proving that he is the creator of the universe. You know, I, I always read this having never ridden a donkey, and now riding a donkey, I realized I couldn't control that donkey. Adam for sure couldn't control his donkey. And when Jesus gets on that donkey and he rides a mile and a half down what we now call the Palm Sunday Road, Jesus is demonstrating that he is the creator of the universe and that animals whom he creates, he can control. And they do his bidding and they do his will. He is instantly taming a young, a young donkey. And believe me, after my experience with the donkeys, donkeys are really hard to control. But I'm not used to controlling donkeys. Jesus is doing something else as well. Jesus is expressing something about his mission. You'd think the king of the universe, uh, the king of kings and the lord of lords would ride a massive war horse, right? You'd think that's what he'd ride. You think about the, Carolin, uh, the, the Carthaginian gen, uh, general Hannibal, and what did Hannibal ride over the Alps to attack Rome? What did he ride? Anybody know? He rode an elephant, yeah. Now, what do you think people thought when he, they see Hannibal riding an elephant? Like, whoa, we're not going to be able to defeat these guys. George Washington rides in victory after the uh, surrender uh, of the British at Yorktown. What does he ride? Well, in the paintings, you see this massive war horse. When Roman generals scored a great victory, they had a triumphal parade. That's what I just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 triumphal parade, but, uh, but Jesus rides, he rides a donkey. Why, why would that be? Well, a lot of times ancient generals did ride donkeys because the idea was this, in, in war you ride a big horse. In peace, you're already powerful, your armies have already won, so you ride a donkey, indicating, look, I'm the general, I've defeated you. I'm coming now to enforce my peace. 
So Jesus uses the donkey to emphasize what he's about to do. I have come into my city. I've come into my chosen city, Jerusalem. I have come for one purpose. My purpose is to advance peace. It's going to be advanced through the cross. It's going to be advanced through crucifixion and resurrection. But I have come into my chosen city to advance peace. I am the ultimate peacemaker. I am the one who will make peace between sinful human beings and a holy God. I come as the peacemaker. He rides a donkey colt to emphasize his peacemaking. So now the procession <coughs> begins. <coughs> and this is a, a, a picture of the Palm Sunday Road in 1895. That Palm Sunday Road is now uh, still there. You could walk it. I love walking it whenever we go to Jerusalem. It's a beautiful, beautiful road. Looks pretty ancient back then. But you get a feel from that picture about how far this parade went from roughly that area to the corner of the temple on the left-hand side there. It was a mile and a half. It was two miles. And all along the way, people begin to gather. Here's a view of it today. People begin to gather around that parade route, so-called parade route, and more and more people are gathering, more and more people are, are seeing Jesus and responding to Jesus, and three things happen that are pretty un seem rather unusual to us. First, they place their cloaks on the ground. You know, back in the ancient world, your most valuable asset was often your cloak. You wore it every day. A lot of times these things were your most valuable asset. They're taking their cloaks and they're putting their cloaks on the ground. Why would they do that? It's like rolling out the red carpet for a dignitary. That dignitary, we would say, is so important that they don't, you, you don't want their, their shoes to touch the defilement of the ground. That's the idea with the red carpet, you know? And so these, these people are taking their cloaks and they're laying these cloaks on the ground saying, you are the king we honor you as the king. You are so important. We don't even want your feet to touch the ground. That's how important you are. So they're doing something that seems to us unusual, but it was an act of, of honor. The next thing they do is they take branches of palm trees and they wave those branches and they place them on the ground with, with the coats. Waving palm branches was something that, that people did back then to celebrate occasions. Okay, what do OSU fans do when a, there's a touchdown? What do you see in the stadium? Waving wheat, waving wheat. You know, sometimes if I'm not properly cheering for OSU, my, my wife will say, Rod, lift up your hand, waving wheat, waving wheat. You know, so people did that all the time back then with palm branches. The next thing they do is they shout Hosanna, and the Hebrew phrase means bring salvation now. Now, maybe a small handful were thinking about salvation from sin, but most of the people are thinking, we want salvation from the domination of Rome. We want a military hero. We want a military powerful general who would lead us into victory over, over Rome. Well, the more he walks, the more people gather and the pace is really slow, and the decibels are rising, and the Gospel of Luke indicates that the, everybody's shouting with a very loud voice. Have you ever been to a stadium? You haven't gone into the stadium yet, 
but let's say it's a baseball stadium and you hear the crack of a bat and you hear people in the stadium yelling. You know what that's like? Walking into the stadium when everybody is yelling. That's what is being heard as Jesus is walking from the Mount of Olives down the Kidron Valley, up the other side of the valley and into the temple area. There is this massive shouting and cheering. Now, the Gospels don't say this specifically, but you can read between the lines, and you know this is true. There was a watchtower at the Antonia Fortress at the northeastern side of the Temple Mount, and the authorities used to watch from that tower and see what was going on below, and if there was any unusual unrest, they would send their police, so to speak, down, and they would shut it down. And we don't know actually that this was happening, but we see the results of it because some of the religious leaders come and say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, look, if they don't speak, the stones are going to cry out. What stones is he talking about? Maybe the stones by the side of the road, but maybe the stones of the temple. It's like the stones of the temple. Creation knows who I am. You don't know who I am, but creation does. That's how obvious it is. They're watching from the watchtower and sending people down to challenge Jesus. So let's think about this um, from our standpoint. This is the White House, and what do we have up on top of the White House? The guy on the right has, has uh, field glasses on. He has binoculars on. The guy on the other side has a gun, okay? I'm telling you, there were people on top of the Antonio Fortress watchtower who were watching to make sure there was no unrest on or near the Temple Mount, and there was unrest on or near the Temple Mount because the king was walking into a city, and it was a big deal. So... <clears throat> um, Think about who we have, the characters we have. Some of the crowds, the minority, small minority, are faithful. Most of the people are, are clueless. They say, hey, a parade, and Jesus is kind of cool, so yay, Jesus. Then we have religious leaders who are trying to subvert the whole thing, and we got the big dog leaders on the Antonio Fortress who are actively trying to shut this down. So now we come to what's unique in the Gospel of John, and John quotes two Old Testament verses. This is a combination of verses. Fear not, daughter of Zion, Isaiah 40, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt, Zechariah, Zechariah 9, 9. What's, what's John doing when he is citing that verse? What he's saying is that any astute observer of that parade could have discerned that this was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of Israel, the Savior of the world. Why would they know that? Because anybody who observed his ministry would know he stilled some storms, he healed some lepers, he made the blind see, he raised people from the dead, he claimed to be the great I Am, and now he's riding on the Zechariah 9-9 donkey. This guy, this guy could be, could be the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. How many people discerned that in that moment? I mean, hardly, hardly anybody does, but some did. 
So the king arrives, he enters the city gates, he ascends the steps to the Temple Mount, and I'm just, I'm just telling you, this is one of the great occasions in the history of the world. I mean, think about the greatest events of the history of the world. Landing on the moon in July of 1969. Pretty cool. There have been a, maybe 12, 15 astonishing events in the history of the world. This is the, the, the top of the list. This is the king walking into his city, the creator walking into his city, and nobody receives him. To heighten the importance of this, think about Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Could that be a reference to Jesus coming into the temple mount as the king in the triumphal entry? But now what John does is he takes us behind the scenes. Okay, everybody seems to be rejecting him. But now behind the scenes, what we find out is that something very powerful is, is happening. So the people um, react to the king in different ways along the parade route. Now, in verses 17 through 26, I'm not going to take it like sequentially. I'm going to take it thematically. And we're going to see three different kinds of response to people uh, who are on the parade route. Response number one is the response of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, amazingly, they admit defeat. John 12, 19, you could read this so quickly and completely miss how important this is. John 12, 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. If you were there, you would have seen defeat on the faces of the Pharisees. Defeat, resignation, they know they're done. Now remember, John's book is a literary masterpiece. And in this masterpiece, there is no word that is casually chosen. They're all very carefully chosen. John uses the term world a hundred times in his gospel. When they say the world has gone after him, John, the gospel writer, wants us to think about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And the Pharisees are realizing the world is moving toward Jesus. They haven't all come to Christ yet for sure. But they're moving toward Jesus through all of our efforts. We can't win. And when they say, you know, um, when they say you're gaining nothing, the modern translation is we're losing. We're losers. All of our influence amounts to nothing. We are losing the battle. Now, I want you to think about this 2,000 years later. What the Pharisees just said was prophetically true 2,000 years later. The world is moving toward Jesus. I know it doesn't seem that way in the United States of America. But you go to South America, to Africa, to the Pacific Rim countries, to China, even now to the Middle East, and it is amazing how many people are thinking about Jesus. So, um, you look, look at this pie chart here, 
and you see that, roughly speaking, Christians amount to 33.32% of the world population. I have no idea how many of those are actual, like, adherent followers of Christ. Muslims are 21.01%, Hindus 13, uh, I can't read the yellow one. Uh, other religions are 12.48%, non-religions non are 14.09, etc. The dominant world religion in that pie chart is Christianity, but here's, what, here's what's amazing. You know, people will say today, Islam is the fastest growing world religion. You have to put a, you have to put a footnote on that and say it is the fastest growing enforced world religion because so many in, in Islam are forced to stay in that faith or come to that faith. The fastest growing religion in terms of people who are making a choice is Christianity by far. And that's even happening with people within Islam. I've said this before, but from West Africa to Indonesia, there have been 69 mass movements within Islam toward Christianity. And guess when they've happened? They've happened since 9-11. They've happened since 9-11. And so what the Pharisees uh, say in John chapter 12 is prophetically true. The world has gone after Jesus. We are losers. And then we come to the second response, the Greeks. The Greeks hunger to see Jesus. This is, this is again, it's, 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 this is so cool. Uh, John 12, 20, among those who went up to, to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, we have to ask the question, who are these Greeks? Well, you may remember that in Galilee, there were 10 cities called the Decapolis. These 10 cities were est established after Alexander the Great defeated the Palestinian area. So he established these 10 cities. These 10 cities were dotting the whole Galilean landscape, and they were thoroughly Greek. They had Greek theaters. They had Greek temples. They had Greek culture. People spoke Greek in these, in these cities. And these, these Greeks up in Galilee apparently have come down to Jerusalem to worship, having heard of the reputation of Jesus. Remember, Jesus was constantly going through the Greek city of Beit Shan or Scythopolis. That's, he went through there all the time. Anytime he went from Galilee down to Jerusalem, he went through the city that we call Beit Shan. And so Jesus was, was we, we would assume, that he maybe preached in that city. But the Greeks are very interested in Jesus. They're moving toward Jesus, and they come to Philip, why Philip? Well, because Philip was from Bethsaida, and Bethsaida was the city in Galilee that was the closest to another Greek-speaking city. So Philip spoke Greek. Well, they probably all spoke Greek, but Philip spoke very, very fluent Greek. So the Greeks go to the guy who knows Greek culture among the disciples and said, hey, uh, Philip, we want to see Jesus. Now remember, every word in John is very carefully chosen. When they say we want to see Jesus, what, uh, what they're saying is we want to encounter him. We want to experience him. We want to engage with him. We want to come to him. 
This is tantamount to the Greek saying, will you pray with us so that we can receive Jesus? That's essentially what they're saying. We want, we want Jesus. We want to come to Him. And so the Greeks are responding warmly and positively to Christ. Now, here's what was interesting. Um, in, if you were a God-fearing person in the ancient world, you could go up on the Temple Mount if you wanted to. Here's a picture of the Temple Mount. But there was a, a barrier, and on that barrier, there were signs. And the sign said, no stranger is to enter within the balustrade or the fence around the temple and the enclosure. Whoever is caught will be responsible to himself for his death, which shall surely come. The Greeks were always going up onto that temple mount, but they couldn't get past the fence. So these Greeks are realizing that the Lord, the Lord is here, and the one we want to see is Jesus, because Jesus is the conduit, the bridge, the door, the path toward the God of the universe. We want Him. We want to know Him. So remember, I, th I think, you know, we, we need to re remember going back to John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, and the Greeks are now believing in Him, and, uh, and Jesus, Jesus now, now realizes that if the world is coming to me, my time has come. Verse 23, the Greeks have come, therefore, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now that the Gentiles in mass are coming to me, now it's my time. Now it's my time to go to the cross, to be buried, to rise from the dead, to ascend to heaven, to be seated at the right hand of God. Quick, quick takeaway. Uh, we should never, ever assume that people are unable to come to Christ. If you were to walk through one of the cities of the Decapolis, you could think, there is no way these people would have responded to Jesus. There's no way. No way would these proud Greeks who are affluent and wealthy and connected and doing business and, and involved in their temples, there's no way that these people in these cities would ever come to Christ. No way. And yet, who comes to Christ at the triumphal entry? It's the Greeks. And you have people in your life and you think that person is so far from Christ, there's no way they will ever come to Christ. No way. Not going to happen. And yet you never know how God is working behind the scenes. You never know what the Spirit is doing in the person's life who lives down the street, works down the hall from you. People can look like they're very far from Christ, and the Spirit is working powerfully in their life to edge them toward you. You know, I've got, I've got four kids, three of whom are work, working in, living and working in Seattle and one working in North Africa. Uh, obviously, North Africa, very far from Christ. Uh, Seattle, that culture is just not, not a warmly, traditionally Christian-type culture. And yet, you know, when my adult children see people come to Christ, it's just really cool to see people who were very far, very far, 
warmly come into a relationship with Jesus that's transformative, and then they get discipled, and they're changed. Don't ever underestimate the work of the Spirit in the lives of your friends. Now, here's the third thing, that we, the third response we see. We see the response of the new believers. The new believers do ministry. Incredibly. I mean, the, these new believers are doing ministry. It's not the 12 disciples who are doing this. It's the people who saw the resurrection of Lazarus. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, stop there. Remember, Jesus went to Bethany. He went to the tomb of Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come forth. There was a big crowd of people around Jesus when he did that. They saw Lazarus hobble out of the grave. Jesus said, loose him and let him go. They took off the burial clothes, and there's Lazarus, looking 15 years younger. The people who saw that had a great story to tell, didn't they? Guess what I saw? I saw a guy get raised from the dead. No way. Yeah. He walked out of the tomb. I don't believe you. That's my friends. They saw it too. And you want to go see Lazarus? He's up there in Bethany. I could, I could show him to you. They are on the parade route witnessing, and they're saying, see that guy on the donkey? That guy raised the guy from the dead. Hey, see that guy from the donkey? That guy has the power over, over death. That guy raised my friend from the dead. See the guy on the donkey? I didn't believe that he could do it, but I saw the guy he rose from the dead, Lazarus, and Lazarus is somewhere here on the parade route. And they're doing, they're doing ministry along the parade route as Jesus is engaged in the triumphal entry. So think about the people who uh, we observe here. The Pharisees express defeat. The Greeks are hungry for Jesus. And all the while, the new believers are active doing ministry. You, you think about this. The, the triumphal entry from a human standpoint looks like a complete failure. The king is coming into his, his temple. The official people don't respond. He is rejected. He's got to go in and cleanse the temple again. It looks like a complete failure. And yet behind the scenes, God is doing something incredibly powerful. And it really is a picture of our world. It's a picture of our world. Christianity is 2,000 years old. And from time to time, I hear non-believers say, Christianity is a failure. Christianity is going to pass away. Christianity is going to die. Voltaire, the French philosopher, said that 200 years ago. Christianity is going to die. People have always said that. And yet what this story teaches us is that whenever there seems like an apparent failure, God is working powerfully behind the scenes, showing that victory is coming. That's what we call it the triumphal entry, not the losing entry. It's a triumphal entry because Jesus is the triumphant one. So here's the big idea. Jesus is the king. And the Jesus movement wins, and therefore we can talk about Jesus with confidence. You can't stop what God is doing in the world. Pharisees tried to, and they realized they couldn't do it. The Jesus movement wins because the Spirit is working supernaturally to draw, to draw people. He was drawing the Greeks up there in the Decapolis city to Christ. The Greeks have gone down to Jerusalem. They want to see Jesus. That's why the Jesus movement wins. 
because the Spirit draws people. The Jesus movement wins because faithful believers are always going to witness to the changes that are made in their life. Look, when you get transformed, you can't stop talking about it. You can't. I remember when I first became a Christian in high school, and for some reason, I was, for about four years, I was fearless. I was fearless. I would talk to anybody and everybody. I, I sometimes kind of made a fool out of myself because I would talk to people uh, and just share about my faith in Christ. I was fearless about this. And the Jesus movement wins because when you come to Christ and you are transformed, people who are transformed are fearless in discussing their transformation in their faith in Christ. The other thing I find about this is that Jesus, Jesus always creates stories, tangible stories, exciting stories, stories that we can tell. Your story is an exciting story. You say, oh, I don't think so. No, it's an exciting story. I think the important thing is for you to begin to see your story in light of God's transforming work in your life. So let me uh, end with four, with four takeaways. Four takeaways to show forth your commitment to the king. Takeaway number one, don't fear what's happening in our world. It's very easy for you to get a steady diet of cable news, of internet news, of things on podcasts, and I will tell you that news today is like eating cotton candy. It is sweet, it is addictive, and it's incredibly damaging to your faith. If you're on the left, you're terrified the current administration is destroying the country. If you're on the right, you're terrified that those on the left are going to shut down the policies that are creating wealth in our country. Cable news networks know that, and they're not so much about news as they are about making a profit. And they know they can make a profit by creating a sense of urgency. I have to watch this tonight. I have to see what take they had on a certain thing. I'm not saying don't have your personal preference about news. We all are going to have that. That's fine. You need to steward your preference well. But what I am saying is that you can get discouraged and frustrated because the breaking news is making you feel as if your side is losing. And your side is not left or right. Your side is the Jesus movement. Your side is Christ. And Jesus is winning. He's winning. And when you look at guys like Joseph, didn't seem like the Hebrews were doing per- too well when Joseph was in Egypt, did it? If you look at Daniel, well, it didn't seem like Israel was doing too well when Israel was in captivity in Babylon, did it? If you're Esther, you think, oh my gosh, you know, the Jews are, are going to be killed, slaughtered. You know, and you could always look at periods of history where it seemed as if the Jesus movement was losing. And it never loses. It always wins. Even when there are apparent setbacks, fear not. The Jesus movement always wins. Always wins. So just don't fear what's happening in our world. Cultivate confidence that Jesus wins. He wins. Uh, A second 
takeaway is this. Honor people in your sphere of influence who are seeking. The Greeks were seeking. I'm, I'm going to speculate just a little bit. Let me, let me just speculate a little bit. If you were in Galilee, you were going to go down to Jerusalem. The traditional route was that you would go down to Beit Shan, which is a Decapolis city. You would go through Beit Shan. You would stop at the local restaurant. Maybe there was an Applebee's there. And you could have lunch with your, with your family. Or maybe there was a, a quick trip and you could, fill up, you could fill up your car. Just kidding, of course. But you, 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 get, you get the picture. Beit Shan was that kind of a place. It was a wonderful place to stop and rest and talk. And Jesus and the disciples went through there at least a dozen or more times in three years. I'm speculating here. But, but could, it, could it be that the seeking people in Beit Shan said, you know, we're going to follow Jesus down to Jerusalem, and we're going to be part of the Passover. A lot of Greeks were part of the Passover. A lot of, the, a lot of Greeks were God-fearing people, God-fearing Gentiles. And they are, they are with Jesus in terms of hearing His teaching. Do you suppose Jesus ever said, you Greeks, get out of here. This is, this, is for, this is for my people only. No, no. Jesus is always honoring everybody who comes into his midst. So my challenge for all of us is that when people in your sphere of influence are seeking, honor them. Build relationships. Build relationships on common ground. That means you listen to their needs. You ask questions. You're curious. Why did the Greeks go to Philip? Why Philip? Why not some of the, the other disciples? Because Philip had the most common ground with the Greeks. Philip was most likely a very fluent Greek speaker because Bethsaida was close to a Greek-speaking Decapolis city. So he had common ground. So people you have common ground with are going to come to you when they have questions if you've built an honoring warm relationship. A third thing you can do is you can just not underestimate the power of your transformed life. Lazarus had a transformed life. Lazarus's friends had a transformed life. Lazarus had friends of friends. They had a transformed life. They saw with their own eyes Lazarus walking in newness of life, and they came to Christ. When you have a transformed life, you, you want to talk about it with other people. If you've been a Christian for a number of decades, sometimes it's easy for you to go, well, I know that I was super excited when I came to Christ, and I'm kind of living a, you know, kind of a normal Christian life now. I'm not, I'm not thinking about the transformative work that God is doing in my life. And I'm saying, think about it. Think about it. And I would encourage you to celebrate those transformations that God has wrought in your life and talk about those transformations. I've told you many times that God brought about a transformative work in my life and in Cindy's life through Celebrate Recovery 14 years ago. That transformation impacted our marriage. It, it impacted our family. And now it's impacting a new generation with my 
my grandchildren. I talk about that a lot. I talk about that a lot. And whenever I talk about that, you know what happens with people I, I, I talk about this to? They say, uh, okay, so please keep this confidential. But I've been struggling with something. Why would they share that with me? Because they perceive that I'm safe. Okay, if he's willing to share his transformation out of a rough patch in his life, then, then maybe he's going to be a wealth of grace and mercy to me in my life. Now, I'm just saying, don't underestimate the, the, the power of your transformed life. Celebrate that and talk about that, and it opens up opportunities for ministry. And then the final one is come up with an elevator pitch to tell your story. And I've, I've said this to, to you before, but I think elevator pitches are so, so important. Elevator pitch is, is a brief, persuasive speech that empowers you to generate interest in you or your, maybe your organization. You can use an elevator pitch to create interest in an idea or yourself. And the, the pitch should last no more than a short elevator ride, 20 to 30 seconds max. Elevator pitch. And if you can come up with a short, succinct elevator pitch, it opens a lot of doors for you to share your faith. My elevator pitch is essentially this. I grew up in church. I'm, I'm saying I, Rod McElvain, grew up in church. When I was 17 years old, I had a professor who actively tried to deconvert me. And a lot of my friends in that class believed the professor and they, they rejected their Christian faith. About that time, a friend of mine gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and I read the book and I reread it and reread it and reread it and reread it and um, that book changed my life. That introduced me to the Chronicles of Narnia and, and so on, and I saw that Christianity was true, and I committed my life to Christ my junior year in high school. I'm saying, I'm telling you, for the next four years, people couldn't shut me up. They couldn't shut me up. And I, I talked about my faith to people who would go, what? What are you even talking about? That was my, and I use that elevator pitch uh, a, a, fair, a fair amount. Here was Lazarus' elevator pitch. I'm, I'm kind of hypothesizing. Jesus raised me from the dead. I'm now walking in newness of life. Okay? Uh, that's a pretty good elevator pitch for you. You know, Jesus transformed my life, and now I'm walking in newness of life. I'm, you can personalize that a lot more, but that was Lazarus' elevator pitch. So, <clears throat> what I want to do at, at this point is I want to have us turn the lights down low and just, and just, I'd like for you to close your eyes for a second. And I would like for you to ask this one question. The one question is, what would my transformation story be if someone asked? What would my transformation story be? Maybe, maybe there's a one-word theme that you've got.
or one sentence theme, what is your transformation story? If you're going to tell somebody the difference Jesus made in your life, what, what, would, what would your transformation story be? And I, I just, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you this week to write that down. Just write, just write it down and share it with somebody else. Let's stand for a closing prayer. How you have, it's so evident how you have lavishly loved us and desired us all the days of our being and even before we were created. How you poured yourself into preparation uh, of speaking through the prophets of the coming Messiah. How you brought the angels with tidings of joy and peace as your son came into this earth. How you prepared the people and the city for the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem and how having taken all the sins of us upon himself Jesus died and you resurrected him that we might all be resurrected and live again Father what a gift what a reconciliation you've done your part the response is ours how do we respond by being grateful for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit within us, by sharing with others about that transformation in our lives, and about witnessing to all the wonderful things that you're doing every day in your power to raise Christ up in this fallen world. We thank you. As we leave today, may we go in gratitude, may we examine and take the challenge that Pastor Rod has given us to examine our story and how we reach out to the people around us and give us that empowerment of the Holy Spirit to follow through. In whose name we pray, amen.